0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, and which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 7 is our passage this morning. John 7, verses 2 through 9. Take a moment to get settled and relaxed. Cell phones turned off or to vibrate or whatever you do with that. John chapter 7. And the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here, go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. All right, we got a good start on this last week. I want to jump right back on it today. But it's uh, always amazing how uh, everybody's got an opinion. and Everybody thinks they know how uh, what you need to do. <laughs> as far as uh, God's will for your life. And Jesus' brothers are no different. Let's take time for silent prayer and make sure each one of us has objectivity to the teaching of God's word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you this morning. We thank you for this privilege, the privilege of assembling together, the privilege of studying to show ourselves approved. And, Father, the the privilege to receive an an understanding of this truth, Father, that you are so gracious to provide for us the Holy Spirit to guide us even to the deep things of God. Father, we thank you for this privilege, for this tremendous responsibility. Father, we're asking for you now this morning to hedge us about with your protection, uh, hinder those that may want to come in here and stir up trouble, Father, and allow our time to be used for the maximum glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, It is in his name that we pray, amen. All right. From last week, we got as far as point four. So very quickly, just to run through these in case you weren't here to get them. The Feast of Booths was drawing near. We learned, we saw that out of verse two. This time marker pinpoints the conclusion to the Galilean ministry six months prior to the crucifixion. Specifically, we are in the fall at this point. When you understand the breakdown of the the various feasts, then you can um, recognize that the uh, Feast of uh, Trumpets, the Feast of the Day of Atonement, and the uh, Feast of Booths here are all in the seventh month, that is, uh, the seventh liturgical month, as it were. And uh, Passover comes up around uh, in in the March or in the spring of uh, the following year. So we're six months out from the cross. Secondly, the Feast of Booths was the third required pilgrimage feast, three times a year that every male was to stand before the Lord. From Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 16. And it had particular kingdom emphasis. And uh, we took the time to look at Zechariah chapter 14 and saw that the Feast of Tabernacles will be a required uh, pilgrimage, not only for every Jewish male, but every Gentile king uh, during the reign of Jesus Christ will be required to stand and present himself and represent his nation before Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. Point two, the brothers of Jesus are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, We didn't spend a lot of time on it because in Galilean ministry episode number 26, we uh, broke down uh, for you all those names and uh, some of the church traditions that that centered on on those guys. Point three, Jesus' brothers had advice for him, but we noticed out of verse five that that the advice was based upon their unbelieving viewpoint based on their unbelieving viewpoint. And this is something we want to recognize when people are trying to tell us what they think. All right. Now, everyone's entitled to an opinion. Um, Not everyone's entitled to express their opinion. They're they're certainly entitled to have an opinion. Uh, But when they feel that it is their place to express it, and if you choose to allow them to express it, uh, sometimes you want them to, right? Uh, I think it's the height of arrogance to say that you don't need anybody's opinion. You'll just do what you want to do, and you know it's between you and the Lord, of course. But you know the Lord does put people of wisdom around you, and 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 there is a blessing to be able to seek godly counsel. And so, advice is not a bad thing in itself. But when the advice is coming from unbelievers, or believers with a unbelieving cosmic viewpoint you have to know what it is and where it's coming from so you can reject it. And even if it's coming from somebody you love, if it's cosmic wisdom, you've got to reject it. And you have to know that and, and understand that up front. And we have the explanation in verse 5, and it's not a side trip. It is an explanation for their comments. The comments are made in verse 4, and then we have the explanatory in verse 5, the explanatory for not even his brothers were believing in him. If you want to draw that out a little bit, you can say, For, you see, they said this because not even his brothers were believing in him. The statement in verse 5 is explanatory for why they said the thing they said in verse 4. See, half the time when you're receiving advice from somebody, the first thing you're trying to figure out is, What are you saying that for? (laughs) What's motivating that? You know, and then once you figure out what's motivating that, you have to be able to evaluate then, well, is it worth this advice or not? See, well, in the case of unbelievers, the advice from unbelievers and how to uh, build a ministry, um, what do you expect? They're going to approach it from a world standpoint. It's going to be like we have in in many applications today. It's going to be market driven rather than obedience to the Holy Spirit. It's going to be Madison Avenue. It's going to be worldly methods. It's all going to be about demographics and research and marketing, as opposed to faith obedience to the will of Jesus Christ as he guides and directs a local church. Their advice, plain and simple, in point four. We can gain some new ground here today. Their advice was for Jesus to abandon Galilee. To abandon Galilee. John 7, 3. Therefore, his brother said to him, leave here. Now, there's lots of different ways you can say leave in Greek. There's lots of ways you can say leave in English, <laughs> right? There's friendly ways we can say goodbye to various folks. For instance, uh, you're all very uh, welcome and we're glad to have you here today. And as you depart, we will probably say something like uh, peace be with you or keep your armor on or walk in grace. And we'll see you again tonight. And, and we'll have a friendly um, message that lets you know, hey, come back and we'll look forward to you next time. Uh, chances are we're not going to dismiss you and say, get out of here and never want to see you again. All right. That's a little bit more harsh, right? Now, the uh just as in English and all languages, there's a, a variety of terms that can communicate different, uh, different aspects and still say more or less the same thing. The idea in departing, going away, uh, abandoning, and really the, uh, the aspect of metabino. Bino is a basic tran, uh, transportation type word for going somewhere. It does take a, a huge variety of, of uh, prepositions, uh, anabino, diabino, katabino, uh, all kinds of different prepositions, but in this case, meta. And a meta is a uh, change. A meta, if you think metamorphosis, all right, that might fix in your mind. A caterpillar metamorphosizes into the butterfly, all right? So if you think meta in terms of a change, then the idea is, is that this is not just a go away. This is a permanently go away. This is change your address, Right? We want a permanent change of address here. You're going to file the post office. You're no longer going to be a Galilean ministry. You need to get to the big time. You need to get to Jerusalem. And so uh, we have an interesting word study there that if you want to pursue that. I didn't... uh, We can pull it up here. I didn't... uh, Some of these are are highly interesting to to a language geek and then others are edifying to other folks. (laughs) It just kind of depends on... uh, some of the interesting uh, context in which the term can be applied. Increase the text size. And so the, uh, the imperative in verse 3. We have apon un prosaton hoi adelphoi u, therefore his brothers were saying to him. And then metabithi, right here, metabithi. That's your imperative from metabino. Right there, your imperative from metabino. And a word study on metabino. This is from the BDAG lexicon meta plus bino. A term that goes all the way back to Homer, so some of the earliest Greek literature we have available to us. Uh, fairly well-known term then, going all the way back to Homer. Examples not only in the New Testament. Um, examples in secular or profane Greek uh, Greek authors used of persons in a geographic change. Used uh, specifically as a change of one's residence or a move. There's a difference between leaving and leaving, <laughs> right? I can leave church or I can leave town. The idea of leaving church meaning you know I'm going home, or I'm going to work, or I'm going somewhere else, but I'm coming back. If I'm leaving town, then it's a permanent departure. It's a permanent change of residence, and that's uh, the uh, the flavor here that we can uh, we can read into what the brothers are really telling them because they don't just say you know go up there once. They say make a permanent move. That's where your ministry is going to take off. And so some of these. Uh, uh Diogenes Laertius right there um some of these are the papyri Josephus in the uh, the Jewish wars have some examples uh the the uh, martyrdom of Polycarp has that example neat example of this is that uh we now have it available in the uh, in the Greek and the English And as those who were searching for him persisted, he moved to another farm, right? If they're looking for you because they want to put you to death, you might have to do some of this. You might have to relocate. You might have to move to another farm. Immediately, those searching for him arrived and not finding him. They seized two slave boys, one of whom confessed under torture, for it was really impossible for him to remain hidden, since the very persons who betrayed him were people of his own household. You know, if you're going to hide, make sure the one betraying you is an in on where you're hiding. (laughs) Or it's uh, there's really no point. Anyway, our term uh, metabino is uh, is right there. Where he moved to a heteron agridion, another farm. All right. So this kind of gives you a little sense or flavor for the term Um, Josephus and the Antiquities of the Jews where uh, the moving is from uh, Babylon to Shushan. This is in some of the uh, traditions uh, surrounding Esther that Josephus recorded. And so uh, Esther came to his royal palace. He set a diadem on her head, and thus was Esther married without making known to the king what nation she was derived from. Her uncle also removed Medabino, from Babylon to Shushan, and dwelt there, being every day about the palace, and inquiring how the damsel did, for he loved her as though she had been his own daughter. All right, we're familiar with the story of Esther. It's a biblical story. This, though, is Josephus' record of the, uh, of the legend. All right. thought there had been another one, but we can avoid Maccabees. Um, So far as that goes. All right. Ah, there's a rhetorical use of metabino. A rhetorical use, meaning that you are engaged in oratory, you're speaking on a particular subject, and then when it's time to move on to the next subject, you metabino to the next subject. So I am going to move on to the next subject, and uh, metabino in illustration of what that was just talking about. All right, so their advice was for him to abandon Galilee. Subpoint A, in comparison with the great public exposure Judea offered, Galilee could only offer obscurity. In comparison with the great public exposure Judea offered, Galilee could only offer obscurity. This was their reasoning. They're really uh, bothered by the term uh, secret and and excited about the term publicly. In verse four. No one who does anything in secret uh, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the cosmos, show yourself to the world. So this is the comparison. Obscurity versus publicity. And it's interesting. There are actual um, human um, cravings for each direction. <laughs> Some people crave the publicity. They thrive on it. If they don't get enough of it, it's like a drug. They need more. It's probably half of the scandal-driven culture we live in and half of what, you know, Britney Spears and all these other Paris Hilton and, and types. They're just craving the publicity. Haven't, been, haven't made headlines in three days now. Oh my goodness, must do something else outrageous so that we can uh, uh, have the publicity. Other people, though, crave the obscurity. They absolutely want to remain as obscure as, as humanly possible. And you can have, actually, inordinate uh, lust desires in either capacity. The, the issue is not what are we seeking, in what capacity is the Father placing us? If he's putting us in a high-profile position because he wants us to maintain a witness in that position, we can't run from that, or we shouldn't. But if he wants to keep us in an obscure location for his plans and purposes, then we have no right to try to seek the greater publicity than he has assigned to us. So you can go—you can go wrong either direction. All right. I find it interesting where he says, "Leave here." And go into Judea so that your disciples, so that your disciples may see your works. Now, are they talking about Peter and James and John and those guys? No. Those guys are here. And I find it interesting because here's Jesus and he's got these disciples. Now, admittedly, he had massive numbers back when he was feeding 5,000 and feeding 4,000 and all that. It has dropped like a rock. See? And maybe that's part of what's motivating these guys. Because they're thinking, you know, six months ago, back at the last Passover season, man, crowds were all over the place. Now you're dwindling. So maybe they're just trying to rejuvenate things to say, you know what, this will kickstart it. Get down there to Jerusalem. And then your disciples may see your works. You wonder, were they assuming that he had other disciples there in Jerusalem? We know he had some. In fact, the ones that he had there were not, he didn't entrust himself to them. I'm going to, I'll give you those points here in a moment. But there were those in Jerusalem who wanted to be his followers. They obviously didn't want it badly enough to move to Galilee. They hadn't been following him for the last two years in this Galilean ministry. But they're ready to follow him so long as he comes to their location. Okay? They're ready to be his supporters. And I find that to be interesting as well. So, um, you know, folks, especially if they're unbelievers, they've got these weird ideas about what what preachers need to do to get new members. See, I've got cousins, my wife has cousins in different places, and and uh, you know, it's just a topic of conversation. And I don't blame them. What are they, what are they supposed to think, you know? Uh, we get together for holidays or once a year, twice a year, whatever it is. And say, hey, how you doing? How's your family? How's your church? Got any new members? Just kind of, you know, whatever. How big's your church? You know? And, and if if you're not, you know, 30% larger than you were last year, well, what are you doing wrong? And uh, hey, you know, somebody's moving to town. I told them they need to go to your church. That's fine. But we're not, and, and this bugs them, I'm not actively scrounging to bring people in here. See? I'm just actively scrounging, trying to feed the people that are here. <laughs> All right. And if the Lord brings more, then I'll have to feed more. See? Anyway, the uh, Galilee could only offer obscurity. And if the God has called you to obscurity, though, that's okay. You know, years and years ago, the first time I ever read the biography on Charles Spurgeon, I said, you know what? I want to have, I would love... Not that I have my preference or anything, but I would love to have a ministry like Spurgeon. But not Charles Spurgeon, his grandfather. See, Charles was a pastor. His father was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. Uh, Charles had twin sons. They both became pastors. But the grandfather actually ministered for some 60 years in a tiny little country church, little parish, total obscurity. I'm thinking, you know, I could do that. Yeah. Keep me obscure for 60 years. As long as I get to teach the Bible. You know, if I don't get to teach the Bible, then I might as well assume room temperature. There's no point in living if you can't teach the Bible. All right. Now under this. seven point one. one. No one works a thing in secret. In Crypto. Dative, uh, masculine, singular here from Kruptos. Number twenty nine twenty seven. No one works a thing in secret. Kruptos. I find it to be pretty interesting. Because this is actually just the opposite of what the Bible truly tells us. It's okay to work in secret. But in the unbeliever viewpoint, if... Um, if if no one notices you do it, it's like it doesn't count. Why do it if you're not going to get credit for it? If you can't claim credit or if you don't get the glory, why do it if no one knows you've done it? But flip side of that is you can do whatever you want as long as you don't get caught. Right? See, the unbelievers got this attitude about things that can be done in secret. No, no. What does God say about what's done in secret? That's what I want to key in on. Cryptos, number twenty-nine, twenty-seven. Uh, it's it's neat, just on its own as a word study. It's where we get uh, all our uh, cryptology type words. If you ever work in with uh, codes and with, uh, um, well, you probably don't. But in a, in a military or espionage type context, if you guys are doing secret code somewhere, I don't want, really want to know about it. <laughs> all right, but it's cryptic. Cryptology, all of your C-R-Y-P uh, English word uh, roots come from kryptos in the Greek. All right, no one works a thing in secret. The phrase is en krypto. And the neat thing about our dispensation is we're okay with doing something en crypto. It doesn't bother us. But see, the second half of the sentence says, if he himself seeks to be in the sphere of publicity. If he himself seeks to be in the sphere of publicity. In Paresia. In Paresia. Paresia is number 3954. P A R R E S I A Paresia. No one does anything in crypto when he himself seeks to be. When he himself is desiring, lusting after, to um, exist in a sphere of publicity, paresia thirty nine fifty four. I'll put it back up here for you. All right, verse four. There we go. Interesting thing about being in the spotlight. It's not just doing public things. It's actually existing, being in a public realm, a public sphere, a sphere of observation. As it starts off with nobody, nobody for and here's your N crypto in secret works. Nobody works in secret, all right? And seeks and seeks. It's interesting. you may be in a public sphere without seeking it. In a sense, all of us are, because we're under observation of the angelic conflict. But we don't have to seek it out, and we don't have to promote it. All right? Other things, just being a believer puts you in the spotlight. Unbelievers are watching you. You may not like it, but you can't help it. You have the testimony of your life before you ever open your mouth in the testimony of your words. Again, though, no, that's just a natural public view, not something that you seek for yourself. So, seeking is the verb there. Uh, himself, en paresia, and then a is the infinitive of to be. So if you want to occupy a realm of en paresia a realm of in public, in publicity, you can do that. You can pursue that. But it's human effort doing that. Alright? Human effort doing that. We don't truly have to seek that out ourselves. He assigns us plenty just in the... Angelic conflict for what it is. All right, Paricia, number 3954. Um, in this context, where we have a clear antonym, we have a clear contrast between secret and uh, between kruptos and, and Paricia, the context there really sets the limits of our translation. There are other contexts, though, where Pariseia, um can have other understandings, including uh, boldness or confidence. In which case, we're not contrasting parousia with secret. We're, we're uh, contrasting parousia with timidity, for example. Uh, Timothy had struggles with timidity as we uh, read between the lines a little bit and find some of the warnings Paul gave about not being too timid, that we have a spirit of, uh, that God did not give us a spirit of timidity. See, we should have confidence. We should be able to stand with confidence in the word of God in which we stand. But in this Application, since parisi is described as the contrast to kruptas, uh, I think a better term besides confidence then would be publicity, openness, public view, a sphere of publicity, the opposite of secret. The Sermon on the Mount, point three, the Sermon on the Mount established the benefits of ministering in secret. As I said a moment ago, it's okay to minister in secret. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 4. Matthew 6 and verse 4. And actually, you could add beyond verse four, you could add to uh, a couple of other applications here. This one is just the first of three. When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be honored by men. And see, that's the motivation. They want the publicity. They want men to be impressed with what they're doing. Truly, I say to you, they have the receipt for their reward. They have their reward in full. Nothing is rewardable at that point because you did it for the wrong motivation. The only reward you're going to get is the, is the uh, impressing of human beings that you tried to do. And uh, you accomplish what you wanted. You impress some human beings. So enjoy your reward. That's all you're getting. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's pretty secret. How secret do I have to be? Well, it's pretty secret if your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be en-crupto. The identical term, the identical phrase, en Your giving will be en and But here's the, the, the joy of it all. Your Father who sees en will reward you. See, So it's okay to do things en crypto because your Father, God the Heavenly Father, is permanently, continuously, eternally monitoring the en realm. And so if you're feeling left out or feeling like, oh, no one's noticing, no one cares. No, God's noticing. He sees the secret things. We're supposed to keep ourselves in the secret counsel of, the God, of God Most High. All right. Beyond giving. This is just one out of three illustrations. There are others. So the idea being is... Uh, If uh, if if the Lord leads you to uh, donate the five hundred thousand dollars that we want to build the facility, don't blow the trumpet. Just write the check. And only you and the Lord and the treasurer will know (laughs) as far as that goes. All right. When you pray, it's not just giving either. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. There again, if your motivation is to impress people with how holy you are, and have people go, wow, that guy can pray. Well, that's your reward then, if that's your motivation. When you pray, go into your inner room. If you're one of those King James only fanatics, you have to go into your closet. I don't want to see any King James people coming out of their closet. All right. And uh, pray to your father who's in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then uh, there's another incrudent application when it comes to fasting. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, they, for they neglect their appearance so that when they be noticed by men they, when they're fasting, see, and 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 they deliberately want to look as nasty and miserable and pathetic as they can, so people say, "Oh my goodness, you know, pastor, what's wrong with you? You look horrible. How can we help?" Oh, nothing. I'm just suffering for Jesus. Just fasting. Ooh, wow. How holy. All right. No, no. In fact, your fasting should be so private, no one ought to even know you're doing it. Anoint your head, wash your face. In other words, take care of basic hygiene and don't let even people notice. Your father who sees in crypto will repay you. That's the... uh, The blessings of it there. All right. Point B, then. These unbelievers are concerned for the Judean disciples' continued interest. These unbelievers, the brothers of Jesus, are unbelievers. Yet they have a concern for the Judean disciples. When they say, your disciples need to see what you're doing. They were concerned for the Judean disciples' continued interest. Manifest yourself to the cosmos, it says. When, they were concerned, when these unbelievers were concerned about Jesus' disciples, they were concerned about the Judean disciples. They didn't care much for or about the Galilean disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and all the rest of them didn't really impress the brothers much. But some of those disciples in Jerusalem had connections. Some of those disciples in Jerusalem could have taken them somewhere. I have to wonder, I pondered, and I'm going to keep pondering. I don't know, we won't ever know the answer, but until maybe glory. But um, Remember, this whole family, the family of Joseph and Mary, this family are... are, are Royalty. They are Davidic in the line. In the legal line. From David through Solomon on down. And um, don't for a minute uh, overlook the, um, the family, uh, the uh, thinking in within that family of, uh, you know, what if? What if Rome was gone? What if? the Davidic throne could be restored. Jesus is the legal heir. And if he is going to be so flaky to get all religious and all that, well, then maybe he could just kind of go away and be a monk or something. And James could then step up and be seated on the throne of David. You ever think about that? So, and we know that there are zealots. We know that there are other uh, parties involved that would love to see the uh, see the uh, departure of Rome and the reestablishment of the Davidic throne. Uh, there's of course groups that want to see the reestablishment of the Hasmonean throne, that is the Maccabean throne, which was a, an illegitimate throne to begin with. So there's all of these politics in play, and for the royal family of uh, of David, you know. That in the cosmos way of thinking, these guys are players. They have to be. And I think sometimes we overlook that. All right, the uh, even the enemies could not dispute his his pedigree. All they could say was, "Well, you know, we looked at the calendar and you were you were born less than nine months uh, after the marriage, kind of thing." Right? We were not born of fornication. <coughs> so. They couldn't dispute the lineage. They just had to uh, impugn the uh, the morality of Mary and Joseph. Anyway, manifest yourself to the cosmos. Let's turn over to John chapter 2 and look at these guys. We haven't seen them for a while. These Judean disciples. John chapter 2. This was his first Passover after the uh, baptism of the River Jordan. So this is his first Passover under the um, indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a prophet of Israel. And uh, he goes to the temple, he finds the money changers, makes the whip, does all this stuff. The disciples remembered in verse 17, Zeal for your house will consume me. And uh, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And these uh, these worldly-minded individuals, all they could think of is in the earthly realm, Uh, it it took, or it's been, 46 years building this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But see, he was speaking of the temple of his body. John, writing this years later, remembers this and, and records it. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, here's the crowd I'm talking about in verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. All right. So they're saved. However, notice observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. I think as we um, look at the parable of the sower, there's the the group that immediately receives the word with great joy. Talking about the the stony ground and then the thorny ground uh, pattern there in in the parable. But when the persecution arises, they fade away. Or, that's rocky ground, or the concerns of the world, the concerns of the cosmos, like weeds, choke out their fruitfulness. The thorny ground. So they believed in his name and the believing took place in observation of his signs. This is why the brothers are saying, you know what? You haven't done some of those signs in Jerusalem for a while. (laughs) They may need to see some more. Okay. See, if your approach to Christianity is based on experiences and, and pep rallies and rah, rah, keep the excitement going. Well, you can build a following with that kind of effort. But what happens when that drops off? I don't know if you've watched it at all, but what happens in the uh, circle, in, the, in uh, the circles of, say, promise keepers, for example? What happens in those circles when the frequency of their, uh, of their uh, gatherings diminishes? See. Because it was built on the excitement and the fun and the, the, the activity and all the things there. But if that drops off, how do you keep pushing that emotionalism? How do you keep pushing that, that 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 charge? So they're observing the signs. And this is what the brothers are concerned about. You need to get back down there to Jerusalem. You need to do some more of those signs. They need to behold. As we read in John 7, 3, that your disciples may behold or see your works, which you are doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? For he knew all men. He was not making use of omniscience at this point. He laid aside those privileges. Philippians chapter 2. But as a prophet, a spirit-indwelled Old Testament prophet, he had the insight here that uh, Ezekiel and Daniel and, Isaiah and all the other Old Testament prophets enjoyed. Verse 25, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Again, the blessing of prophetic insight that uh, goes with that kind of ministry. All right, manifest yourself to the cosmos. Interestingly enough. All right, point five then. Jesus rebuffed his brothers and highlighted the difference between him and them. Jesus rebuffed his brothers and highlighted the difference between him and them. I think it's a remarkable pattern for us to follow. John chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Now, he doesn't uh, get nasty with them. He's not rude in any way. But he is firm. Again, point five, Jesus rebuffed his brothers and highlighted the difference between him and them. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. It's just an opportunity to to highlight. Say, you know what? You got one way of thinking. I got another way of thinking. See, family invites you over. They can't figure out, why don't you ever come to the family gatherings? Well, Because you always schedule them on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And uh, maybe that's your tradition. That's your pattern. That's your way of thinking. It's not mine. Schedule it later in the day. Schedule it on a Saturday instead of a Sunday. But so far as uh, this is the way you operate, this is the way I operate. And... uh, Maybe the difference between the two different ways of operation will, uh, you know, spark some thought. And, and that's all you got to do. Jesus simply says, my time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. We're on different, uh, not just time zones, time universes. All right? Because you're operating on cosmos standard time. And Jesus Christ says, no. I'm functioning in obedience to my Heavenly Father. And that's all you got to do. And you don't have to thump a Bible or preach or yell at anybody and say, you know, you're going to hell if you don't change. Just lay it out there and say, you know what? This is the way you operate. This is how I operate. And the way I operate is consistent with what God reveals in His Word. Give them something to think about. Jesus' time for exaltation is not yet. This is what they want. Publicity. Show yourself. Manifest yourself. The term manifest uses a, a light term like spotlight yourself. Jesus' time for exaltation is not yet. Especially this feast. I mean, any of the feasts. But this one in particular. This is the feast where he's going to accept the worship of Gentile kings in the Millennial Kingdom. And they want him to go up on this feast... On this day, at this year, and and glorify himself? No. No time for that. He's got cross work to do before he can ever accept the crown from his father and then begin to accept the glory from the Gentile kings. Jesus' time for exaltation is not yet. Remember, what are we commanded to do? Humble ourselves. That's what we're told to do. When the proper time comes, the father will exalt us. And it doesn't say, humble yourself now and exalt yourself later. Humble yourself, God will exalt you at the proper time. It's never time to exalt yourself, unless you're an unbeliever. And then it's always time to exalt yourself. That's that's what time it is. Unbelievers can always exalt themselves. Because, as I mentioned, cosmos standard time is always self-exaltation mode. Alright, it's like some people don't even need... uh, you know, there's things they like doing. They don't even need an excuse, but they like to find them, right? Said, what was that country song? It's, uh, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Okay? Right? So that means you can go hit the bar or whatever. Down a cold one, because it's 5 o'clock somewhere. All right? For the rest of world, it's, it's a beautiful illustration. I don't even know whose song it is. It doesn't matter. It's a beautiful illustration that, you know what? Cosmos time, it's always time. Always time for self-exaltation. Because that's the mode of the cosmos. The the God of this cosmos has already arranged it as such with his five eye wills. And so you draw the contrast. Notice he goes on. Your time is always opportune. Let me also point out, by the way, since uh, we've got this here. In verse 6. There's a couple different terms for time. And this is the. uh, There's chronos. Where you just have chronology. The the record of time. But then there's kairos. Which is the proper time. The fitting time. The uh, perfect timing. And he says the kairos. My kairos. Does not yet exist. Has not yet been brought into existence. But your kairos. Always. Is hetoimas prepared, fitting, appropriate, suited. Okay? You ever say something? Maybe you say the right thing, but it's at the wrong time. Okay? That's like the story of my life. Right? I'm Pastor Bob, say the wrong thing at the wrong time, boldly. That's me. Okay? Legendary. But. As far as the cosmos is concerned, it's always the right time to be cosm- cosmically thinking. Anyway, it's not chronos in either use, it's kairos in both applications, right? There's kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Jesus has a kairos, the world has a kairos. For the moment, it's the world's kairos. Until such time as this cosmos passes away, then it's the Lord's. Then it's the Lord's opportune time. Unbelievers cannot be the object of cosmos hatred. Unbelievers cannot be the object of cosmos hatred. Now you might dispute this, but the testimony is here and it's consistent. Not only is it consistent in John 7, but we have agreement in John 15, we have agreement in 1 John 4. Unbelievers cannot be the object of cosmos hatred. He says, uh, the cosmos cannot hate you. Cannot hate you. The cosmos cannot hate you. But it hates me. In part, I think folks that want to split hairs and dispute that verse, um, do so on the basis of really an undeveloped doctrine of hate. Um, The world does not hate its own, because its own is itself. It's like hating your own body or hating yourself in the uh, application of meseo, hatred there. But it hates Christ. See, the very being of the unbeliever is consistent with the very being of the cosmos. And so it cannot be the object of the hatred. Christ testifies of the evil of this cosmos. But every unbeliever testifies in agreement with the cosmos. Because every unbeliever is of the cosmos. Anyway, the words of Jesus in verse 7, the world cannot hate you. We want to to recognize that, and that's the way it is. Christ said it, I believe it. But it hates me because I testify of it that his deeds are evil. Here is someone who is in the world, but not of the world. He is from heaven. He is from his heavenly Father. He is the source of the world. See? it's amazing is that uh, he is not of the world, but literally the world is of him. He does not have his source in the world, but the world does have its source in him. Because he's the creator of all. And uh, the cosmos hates the one who made him. Alright, now this is in agreement with John fifteen nineteen, The abiding passage of John 15. Verse 18 says, if the world hates you, and it does, first class, known to be true, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Any hatred that the cosmos brings to bear against a, a member of the royal family of God, against you and against I, is because we're in Christ. And it's nothing personal. The world doesn't hate you because of you. The world hates you because of Jesus. And you're in Christ. If, and you're not, but if you were of the world, the world would love its own. The cosmos loves the cosmos. The selfish nature of the cosmos. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You now belong to Christ. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You know the object of that hatred because you're in the one that uh, the world hates more than anything else. That's consistent with 1 John chapter 4. John's uh, audience had to deal with a lot of angelic conflict, including false teachers, false prophets, the uh, messengers of uh, evil spirits and demons and everything else. You are from God, little children, says in verse 4, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the cosmos. You and I (coughs) have... (coughs) Excuse me. You and I have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling of God the Son. We have the indwelling of God the Father. If we choose to be in fellowship with all three, we have that opportunity. The messengers of this world are are promoting the uh, spirit of this world. It's called their spirit of Antichrist in verse 3. Verse uh, 5, They are from the cosmos, therefore they speak as from the cosmos. See. It's their native language. It's where they're from. See, waitress at Pluckers the other night sp- speaks a real fluent Spanish. Well, guess what? She's from Spain. <laughs> All right. She doesn't speak a fluent Mexican Spanish or Latin American Spanish or, uh, if you understand the different dialects, Cuban Spanish or Puerto Rican Spanish or any of the Colombian Spanish or whatever she speaks. Spanish, Castilian, pure Castilian Spanish. And uh, that's her native language. She didn't learn English till she came here. Well, they are from the cosmos, therefore they speak cosmos. That's what they speak. And the world listens to them. You're able to communicate when you are on the same page, when you're speaking the same language. But we are from God. And who listens to us? See, they're speaking cosmos, we're speaking God. And notice, he who knows God listens to us. If you don't know God, if you don't speak God, how are you going to listen to somebody speaking God? He who is not from God does not listen to us. He doesn't speak the language, doesn't know the language. He doesn't speak God, he speaks cosmos. And you're going to try to speak God to somebody that speaks cosmos? All right? Is this making sense? Okay, I must be speaking God and you speak. God comes together, doesn't it? All right. It's a beautiful thing. And so there is a difference. What is your source? What is your origin? And where's the conflict? Again, there's conflict. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. I've overcome them. The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. You know, the thing about it, everybody gets excited. They want to read these books on prophecy and say, ooh, who's, who's going to be the Antichrist? Or who's Antichrist? Is he alive today? See, how are we going to live? What, what if we have to take this mark of the beast and, and all this other stuff? People get scared. All right, well, if you have a dispensational understanding, you know we're not even going to be here. If there's other things that are kind of forerunners of that, that lead into that, we can have some relaxed attitude about that too far as that goes but you know what do you expect It's the direction this world's going right and uh, all this other stuff as if as if uh you know uh, ooh, what if a certain person actually gets elected president she who shall remain nameless or anyone doesn't matter her or him or the other him or another him doesn't matter as far as antichrist is concerned Antichrist is a little horn until permitted, until the restraint is lifted and permitted to grow. It's not going to happen while the church is still here. I'm not worried about the uh, Antichrist that's coming. What about the Antichrist that's already here? And so um, that's verse 3 here in 1 John 4. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the cosmos. The spirit of Antichrist has been at work since this book was written in before. Non-disciple believers... i gonna give you some, a couple of sub-points sub and we're done. But under the, the principle that unbelievers cannot be the object of cosmos hatred... I will point out that non-disciple believers, even though they could be the object of hatred, they do not typically draw such hatred either. Normally, they could be an object of hatred because they're in Christ, but since they're not disciples, a lot of times the cosmos gives them a pass. Particularly if through a friendship snare... That can keep that disciple enslaved, and this is what James 4:4 4, 4 is about. Friendship with the cosmos is hostility towards God. We're told not to be friends with this cosmos, and so the cosmos, of course, hates believers, unless, of course, it finds that a friendship snare can get their eyes off the Lord. In which case, it's still a hatred, but it's a hatred by devious means, through the friendship snare. So non-disciple believers do not typically draw such hatred either. However, faithful believers, faithful believers who communicate divine viewpoint will always draw such hatred. Always. The cosmos will hate when the testimony highlights their evil. Faithful believers who communicate divine viewpoint will always draw such hatred. Pick any sin in the book. Practitioners of that sin are not fond of faithful preachers who preach what the book says. Faithful believers who communicate divine viewpoint will always draw such hatred. John fifteen eighteen, John 17, 14, 1 John 3, verse 13. We'll look at these and we'll be dismissed. Faithful believers who communicate in divine viewpoint. It doesn't have to be pastors preaching, it could be just you know, average believer in the workplace, communicating divine viewpoint. Some topic comes up, and a believer says, You know what? The Bible says that's wrong. <laughs> just put the bullseye on your back, and you just painted it right there. You're communicating divine viewpoint and the cosmos isn't going to like it. See? <laughs> just, you don't have to be a preacher. Just be a believer. Testify of the truth. See? All right. John 15:18. I remember I'd work in the sheriff's department and we'd reach the weekend and all the officers would be sitting around debating which strip club they want to go to tonight. And, you know, toss up an idea between two or three different places and whatever. And uh, then they tease me. They knew I was going to be a preacher. They say, "Oh, are you coming with us?" I said, no, I'm not coming with you. But then you know what? A fellow coworker said, "You know what? I'm not going either. That's not right." All right, John 15:18. If the world hates you, and does, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And we saw from John 7 the reason why. He testifies of it because its deeds are evil. John 17:14. In his high priestly prayer to the Father, as he's anticipating the departure from the cosmos, the return to the Father, he says, But now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the cosmos, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, your logos, and the cosmos has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the cosmos, even as I am not of the cosmos. Notice he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the cosmos, but to keep them from the evil one. In other words, don't take away your problems, but protect you through the testing to fulfill your work assignment. And then finally, 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised. Don't be shocked. Like that lieutenant in Casablanca. Right, I'm shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in here, right? And then they hand him his cut. He says, "Oh, thank you." Right, I'm shocked, shocked. There's gambling going on in here. Oh, thank you. All right, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, so we're the object of the hatred because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death faithful believers who communicate divine viewpoint will always draw such hatred all right that's episode 54 jesus rejects brothers advice next week we'll return for episodes 55 and 56 55 is the galilee departure and the samaritan rejection so the samaritan village doesn't want to sell him any food and uh james and john the sons of thunder want to just bring in the artillery nuke the place and uh be done with it But then the cost of discipleship, about putting your hand to the plow and looking back. We'll have to examine the uh, passages there. Anyway, we'll be in Luke chapter 9 next week and a couple of places in Matthew as we wrap up the Galilean ministry with episodes 55 and 56. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for hedging us about and for allowing this class to proceed in its entirety, both uh, because you kept us from having a a disruption, an interruption, and also, Father, you kept my voice clear. I thank you for that. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.